0: Hello and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here today as always with Professor Akil Amar, the birthday boy. Happy birthday, Akhil.
1: And Happy New Year, Andy.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Shana Tovah to all of our, our Jewish members in the audience. Um, so we've been conducting a series of episodes talking about uh, scholars, scholarship, and schools. And we were up to a point where we were going to discuss books, and this has to do with questions of authority: how do you know what books to read? How do you know what books are reliable, um, and so forth? And how do you uh, know who to consult uh, when you have a particular uh, question? Where what is expertise, and how do you uh, find it? Um, so these are some of the questions we've been addressing, and of course, it's particularly apropos on books, because Professor Marr has, as we know, a new book, The Words That Made Us, Epic Book, um, which uh, endeavors to be an authority of of sorts on uh, the founding era, and um, we're going to get to that, but of course, sometimes life intervenes, and over the past week, there's been a uh, brouhaha over um, a law in Texas, which has raised... um, questions by many uh, would-be constitutional experts. Uh, Whether or not the law itself raises constitutional questions is one of the things that I think we should address. Um, But at any rate, it's got people thinking about the Constitution, talking about the Constitution, and therefore it's uh, grist for our mill. Um, So we are going to uh, address that today. We're going to return
1: next week uh, to books, and actually on reflection, this um, makes particularly good sense because uh, actually next week I'll be on book tour, um, talking about the, the new book. And next week, um, uh, since we mentioned, actually, thank you for your birthday wishes. Uh, my that, that I'm going be even older, um, a year older, and 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 it's a new year for uh, all our um, Jewish friends. Um, uh, next week is also uh, a, a particularly uh, significant calendar-wise, especially to those of us who care about constitutional law. Um, it's known as Constitution Week. September 17 is actually known as Constitution Day um, in the same way that July 4th is Independence Day and uh, June 14th is, is Flag Day. Um, September 17, 1787 was the day on which the Philadelphia Convention that drafted the Constitution went public with its plan, its proposed um, constitution, which was then uh, discussed um, over the next year by the American people and ratified. And so actually next week seems a a, a particularly good time uh, to talk about the book that really centers on um, that uh, event that began with with September 17th, 1787, what I call the hinge of human history, the year that changed everything, the year in which we, the people of the United States, did in actual fact ordain and establish a constitution uh, per the preamble. And again, that that process kicked off, that ratification process, the the public process, uh, with publicity and publications and newspapers printing the constitution start to finish. Um, That kicked off on September 17th, 1787. So actually on reflection, it it makes better sense. The the world was actually giving us a a, a hint here saying, no, this week talk about what everyone's talking about, the the Texas abortion case, and then next week um, we'll return and talk about books and the Constitution itself and my book on the Constitution.
0: Yes, and of course, even though um, it's true that um, Constitution Day... Uh, kicked off a year of ratification discussion your book explores more than just that year it explores the period of 1760 to 1840 and makes the case that a constitutional conversation took place over that entire time and indeed uh, has continued to today so it's appropriate that we prepare for that by having a constitutional conversation uh, ourselves on the contemporary issue Great. Right. so tell me a little bit about what's been going on um what 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 is this uh, brouhaha over uh, a uh, state law in Texas?
1: Uh, so uh, Texas passed um, a law that um, prohibits uh, abortions uh, except um, very early um, in the gestational process, um, at, uh, five or six weeks into the process. Once there's a, I think, a fetal heartbeat that. The legislature um, makes um, ab- abortion improper, except in, in certain very narrow situations of, of medical emergency. Rape and incest are, are not, at least uh, under the words of the statute, um, grounds for um, a post-heartbeat uh, uh, abortion. Um, so that's unusual and distinctive. Um Um, Most states have never tried to, uh, uh, in the modern era, the post-Roe v. Wade era, tried to prohibit abortions that early, and and Roe v. Wade and later Supreme Court cases, of course, have said that that laws like that are constitutionally um, invalid, Um, uh, but Texas is trying to test Roe and and get the court ultimately to to, uh, recant, so that's one aspect of the Texas law. Um, a related and very interesting aspect of the Texas law is the way in which it's uh, enforced, um, which is not by ordinary prosecutors, um, but by all sorts of private individuals in Texas who are deputized, in effect, to bring lawsuits against um, abortion providers. Um, lawsuits aren't, uh, uh, aren't uh, to be brought against the woman seeking abortion um, but against all sorts of other folks, the, the doctors, the, the staff at the, at the abortion clinic, um, even uh, people who are aiding and abetting the, the woman seeking this um, uh, uh, procedure, um, friends who might uh, drive uh, her to the, uh, uh, the clinic, maybe even um, Uber drivers. Um, it, uh, uh, those who aid and abet are subject to um, lawsuits brought by basically almost anyone in uh, Texas, who's who's deputized to to uh, bring a lawsuit uh, to to prevent this, and and those who do uh, succeed in bringing uh, to the court's attention, the state court's attention, uh, this violation of Texas law, are actually rewarded with a certain kind of bounty, um, a, a, a certain a, a dollar um, a amount that will uh, come from the um, the defendant. But just to make it easy, imagine it's the the physician who uh, performs the The abortion, Um, I guess one other thing to mention, and and that creates some real procedural complexities, about who can bring a suit when um, to to challenge the law? Um, And we'll talk about those. Um, And I guess the one other thing uh, for now that our audience should know is this law does not purport to restrict um, abortions outside the state of Texas. So it is not um, uh, prohibited by the law to help a woman arrange for a lawful out-of-state abortion, let's say, in California, a Texas woman who makes a plan to, let's say, um, a fly to Los Angeles to, to uh, get uh, uh, the procedure because it's time-barred in Texas.
0: Okay, so um, when th- this law was passed some time ago, but it it uh, just took, took effect um, recently... And in the time leading up to its uh, effect date or effective date, um, there was a challenge brought to the law, before, and it went to the Supreme Court. Um, now, the court didn't uh, hear it in you know as a full fledged case, but it appeared on the so called shadow docket. Is that right? So
1: the court decided and not to um, uh, grant a full um, uh, briefing and, and argument. Um, the court in a nutshell, did nothing. It explained in a very short series of, 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 of opinions, again, without brief, full briefing or oral argument. Full briefing meaning the much more elaborate process that, that typically occurs in about 70 or 80 cases a year. So um, what the court actually did is nothing at all. People came to the court trying to get the court to temporarily um, uh, prevent the law from going into effect. They frankly, could have brought the lawsuit many weeks ago. They chose to wait until the 11th hour, proverbially, um, maybe to heighten the drama and attention to the thing. They brought the issue to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear it. There are all sorts of procedural complexities, point Point one, point two. Point um, two, we, in general, are um, a court of review, that, not initial view. We tend to like to um, decide cases, we, the Supreme Court, after they've been uh, percolating um, in lower courts, state and federal, after the issues have been um, uh, argued and and ventilated and considered by typically not even just one um, previous court, but but several previous courts um, below before um, it reaches us. So, um, of course, the the litigants in this case didn't go first to the U.S. Supreme Court. They tried to go to other courts um, initially. And those other courts also declined to enjoin the law, to issue a court order preventing the law from going into effect. So they did nothing, these lower courts, of state and, and, and federal courts are open, and yet none of them um, tried to prevent the law from going into operation. Um, papers were filed in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in effect, did nothing Um, But that became big news. The Supreme Court does nothing. And I'm not sure, actually, that most of the journalists really captured um, uh, what did happen and did not happen and why.
0: Right. And I think that um, some of our audience may be under the impression that Roe versus Wade has been overruled or that the right to abortion, um, you know, somehow the Supreme Court made a statement on the right to abortion uh, uh, that changed its previous uh, status. Um, would you, and would you say that that's correct or that th- th- those are incorrect impressions that people have?
1: I think those are incorrect impressions. The, co- the court was uh, uh, divided five to four. The four dissenters were the three uh, liberal justices who were all in on Roe versus Wade, all Democrat appointees, um, in order of seniority, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. They were joined by the chief justice um, uh, for reasons we can talk about, John Roberts, who does not like Roe v. Wade at all, and has only once in his life ever um, voted um, with folks claiming um, abortion-related rights, only once. Um, uh, And we can talk about that. But but he joined the dissenters, the majority, um, five um, other justices, all Republican appointees in order of seniority, Clarence Thomas, Uh, uh, Sam Alito, uh, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett um, joined a short opinion, Uh, no individual justice um, authored it. It it was a per curiam opinion, an opinion by the court, and it basically didn't reach the underlying merits of the lawsuit. It just said, in effect, this is an odd procedural posture to the case because no one has yet um, stepped forward to enforce the law And until we know who's going to enforce the law, um, what private person um, um, is going to try to initiate a lawsuit, it's not at all clear who the proper defendant is in the lawsuit, who can be sued. So that's one problem. It's not clear that uh, the plaintiffs have yet suffered any legal injury at the hands of any individual um, uh, defendant who can be named. So they say that's one problem. And the second is, that this um, law hasn't yet gone into operation and um, hasn't yet received a lot of attention by um, lower courts. And our typical practice is to wait for lower courts, state or federal, to get involved and to think about the issues and tee them up um, so that then we can um, uh, review the matter with uh, with the benefit of um, judicial thinking of, of other judges.
0: Okay, so um, as American citizens, though it, it creates a somewhat confusing situation, I think, because um, you know we uh, we're citizens of of the United States, and therefore we're we're governed by the federal constitution, and I think in most states, um, people would be justified in believing that uh, abortion is legal up until you know whatever it is 21 weeks or whatever it says in, in Roe versus Wade. Um, and that that, that is uh, you know protected by the Constitution as that uh, decision elaborates. But in one state, it appears that that may not be the case um, because in Texas, there's a law and the law says essentially six weeks, and the Supreme Court has not said anything, to say that law is unconstitutional, hasn't said it's constitutional, hasn't said it's unconstitutional. So if you're a citizen in Texas, you're still an American citizen, and yet you may feel that you don't have this right, even though the Constitution should apply to you. One would think, and you're so because you're still a citizen of the United States. So how is it that a federal constitutional right uh, can be? Uh, owned by student by by citizens in 49 states and not in the 50th state.
1: Um, So this takes us to first principles of constitutional law that ordinary people fail to understand. Um, uh, And that's why I write articles um, on this topic. Since We're talking about citations and, and ranking. One of my most cited articles, I'm very proud of it, is forward to the Harvard Law Review. It's entitled The Document and the Doctrine. And the document is the Constitution, and the document and the doctrine is what the Supreme Court has said about the Constitution, and those are not the same thing at all. And Roe versus Wade is a case, and it should never be um, conflated with the Constitution itself. Uh, the Constitution um, is the supreme law of the land. A case is an interpretation of that, but only. An interpretation of the Supreme Law of the Land. It is not itself the Supreme Law of the Land, even though it might be absolutely binding on the litigates to the case, um, what we in law called race judicata, thing adjudicated for the parties. It might be a precedent for other cases, and it might have a certain kind of interpretive weight, um, but it is not the same as the Constitution itself. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And that's my um, article, <clears throat> which is actually very widely cited, and I'm proud of it, um, called The Document and the Doctrine. Earlier, we had on our podcast the great Philip Bobbitt. Um, he's one of our first guests, and we had him talk about impeachment and he, presidential impeachment, and he's an expert. On presidential impeachment, having um, uh, co written a book about presidential impeachment. I co wrote an, an earlier edition of that book um, with the, the great Charles Black, who was um, um, both my teacher um, and, and Professor Bobbitts, the late Charles Black, um, professor at Yale Law School. So, Bobbitts is an expert, of course, on, on presidential impeachment, uh, but he's an expert on many more things. And And one of the things that he's best known for is his idea that. Um, Constitutional interpretation actually is based on several different ways of making constitutional arguments. Um, And some of those focus on the document, the text of the Constitution, its original intent or enactment history or amendment history, um, and the structure of the document as a whole. That's what I call, in effect, the document, text, history, and structure. Um, and those are three ways of approaching constitutional law. But Bob says, oh, there's this other way. Um, and it focuses on what the Supreme Court typically or courts generally have, have said about the document. And, and that's precedent or doctrinal argument. And that's a different thing. And Bob, it's and a big insight or b- big observation is um, that it might be the case that sometimes the doctrine points in one direction and the document, text, history, and structure points in a different direction. Um, And so I'm building on Bobbitt um, when I write this article in the Harvard Law Review. um, uh, Bobbitt's thesis is is, uh, put forth in a couple of books. One is called Constitutional Fate. And one is called constitutional interpretation. Oh, and you see, I just I just worked in books because I you know, that's where big ideas about constitutional law are often presented in, in books and articles that are widely cited and, and widely respected by the legal community, judges, uh, lawyers and scholars. So Bobbitt writes these books, constitutional faith, constitutional interpretation, saying the text, history and structure of the document is really different from. Supreme Court present. I think he's right about that. I build on that in an article in the Harvard Law Review called The Document and the Doctrine. Now, how does that apply to the Texas situation? First, Texas is not the only uh, state that's pushing back against Roe versus Wade. Mississippi has done so very dramatically. Um, It hasn't drawn the line at... um, Five or six weeks or seven weeks, fetal heartbeat is drawn the line in a different place. Fifteen or sixteen um, weeks uh, post um, conception or post implant, uh, implement, uh, implantation, but 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 um, um, still well be, well before what most people think is um, uh, fetal viability, the ability of the fetus to live outside the womb and 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 survive, um, which is typically thought medical technology is changing. That's maybe. In the earliest maybe 20 weeks 21 weeks. um possible to imagine 19 weeks or something like that but but uh, Mississippi is uh, pushing the margin. Other states have tried to push the margin since Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court has has slapped some of those state efforts down. But do not think that Texas is the only state that's pushing back against Roe versus Wade. It's the one that's actually gone the furthest with this new law. In two respects, the, the the early date, five to six weeks, and the, the deputization strategy, the um, having um, uh, ordinary citizens rather than prosecutors enforce the law. For for certain reasons we haven't yet um, explained to the audience, but will become clear by the end of this session. So Texas isn't the only state doing this. Lots of other states are trying to do it. The Supreme Court has already agreed. To hear the Mississippi case, the Dobbs case, with full oral argument. That was already on the docket before the whole Texas publicity um, of the last um, week or so. So, um, Texas isn't the only state. Um, and now, let me close the loop by um, telling our audience just a little bit more about the document as opposed to the doctrine. So, the Supreme Court can say whatever it wants. It can say the moon is made of, of green cheese, but blue cheese, but is it? Okay, um, and, and it can say the Constitution means X. But if at the end of the day those claims are utterly implausible, then it is permitted within our legal system for l- legal actors to try to push back against that. Um, allegedly erroneous case, and get the Supreme Court, in effect, to change its position. Now, there are different ways of getting the Supreme Court to change its position. One would be changing the justices. Um, that can occur naturally with resignations or death. It can occur by modifying the court size, um, uh, what we call court packing, um, and we talked about that in previous episodes. So, so one way to change. The judicial outcome might be to um, uh, just because they're new justices, and there have there are a lot of new justices. No justice who sat in the court on Roe versus Wade still sits. Um, they're, they're all um, um, actually, I think they're all dead. Um, uh, so. Um, another thing that, that the legislature might try to do is sh- um, uh, strip one court of jurisdiction and give the decision to um, a, a different set of, of, of judges or justices. So we could, we could talk about um, uh, that. Um, but um, a third mechanism, it's not court packing um, or jurisdiction stripping, is just generating a, um, a new law that will create new litigation that will eventually get to, let's say, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will have an opportunity to decide whether it still agrees with the earlier allegedly erroneous precedent, um, in this case, Roe v. Wade. Um, uh, And this is not unique to Texas or today's Republican Party, so I want to bring up one landmark case and, um, and to show you what happened earlier. People who don't like Roe versus Wade, some analogize it to a case called Lochner, which is from the early 20th century in which the Supreme Court invalidated certain um, a whole uh, slew of laws. Lochner was just one case uh, that was emblematic of an era. The Supreme Court struck down, in effect, minimum wage and maximum hour laws, laws designed to protect um, employees and consumers. Um, and in the name of um, um, certain principles of anti- redistribution, um, and sometimes claiming um, uh, an idea of freedom of contract, the Supreme Court struck down um, some of these progressive era laws. And, and so some folks say, oh, R- Roe versus Wade is like Lochner in that it's striking down laws um, that the court just doesn't like, but it's not so clear where in the Constitution these laws are prohibited. But the real, and some people say Roe is like Lochner, which is a not well respected case by lawyers. But the, the most emphatic opponents of Roe versus Wade do not analogize it to Lochner versus New York, which is 1905. They say it is Dred Scott. And let me remind the audience of what Dred Scott was. Dred Scott was a case in which the Supreme Court held that blacks couldn't be citizens, even if they were born free, even if their father was born free, even if their grandfather fought in the American Revolution, as uh, free Blacks did at places like Bunker Hill and elsewhere, and even if their grandfather voted on the Constitution, as free Blacks did in many states. Dred says says, free Blacks can never be citizens. Blacks can't be citizens. What does Roe versus Wade say? Feed I are not persons. Dred Scott took an issue that where states disagreed. Some had slavery, some didn't, and actually created a national rule and a pro-slavery rule. What did Roe versus Wade say? Some states prohibited abortion. Others allowed it. Roe versus Wade nationalized that issue and in a pro-abortion um, um, way. Dred Scott also said the Missouri Compromise is unconstitutional. Congress can't legislate to prohibit slavery in the territories. Um, and, um, and that made the Republican Party platform unconstitutional because the Republican Party platform was um, to prohibit slavery in the territory. So the Republican Party platform of 1856 and 1860, um, Roe is an 18, uh, Dred Scott is in 1857's case. So Dred Scott says, in effect, the, Republican part, the platform of one of our two great political parties, the, the Republican Party was just in, uh, beginning then, a fledgling national political party, but the, uh, the platform of one of the two parties is unconstitutional. And that's what Roe versus Wade in effect says now that um, because for the last 40 years, the Republican Party platform every four years has been um, uh, a pro-choice, excuse me, pro-life, um, that that, that um, Roe versus Wade is wrong and should be repudiated. So, um, And the basis of both decisions, Roe versus Wade and Dred Scott, is a thing called substantive due process that critics say is made up because the word substantive doesn't appear quite in the Constitution. So... People who oppose Roe versus Wade say this is evil. Um, 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 It's just like um, Dred Scott. Dred Scott de-citizenized Blacks and Roe de-persons um, uh, feed I, innocent, unborn human life. It does so, and then um, using a thing that's not even in the Constitution, substantive due process. It takes an issue where states disagree and, and improperly nationalizes it in an immoral direction, and it renders the Republican Party unconstitutional um, and takes a, uh, an issue that should be decided politically out of politics. And the folks who pushed back against Dred Scott were named Abraham Lincoln. Um, his attorney general, um, Bates, his cabinet. And they pushed back against Dred Scott saying, we don't pr- um, uh, uh, advocate trying to free Mr. Dred Scott. The case was decided. It applies to to him um, and his alleged master, Sanford. It's race judicata, a thing adjudicated. The court decided that case, but we want to challenge Dred Scott as a legal principle, we think it's a misinterpretation of the Constitution, and we're going to push back on it. We're going to pass laws inconsistent with Dred Scott and uh, invite slash pressure the court to reconsider its jurisprudence. And here's one thing that Lincoln's Attorney General did. Lincoln's Attorney General writes an opinion while Dred Scott is on the books saying blacks are citizens. I'm going to issue a passport to a black American who wants to travel abroad and passports are issued issue for citizens. And I know Dred Scott said the opposite, but Dred Scott um, um, is an interpretation of the Constitution um, that I think is wrong, and I'm going to follow my own lights. And if I'm wrong, sue me. Um, um, and that's what Abraham Lincoln's Attorney General Bates did in the Dred Scott uh, litigation. And, and now you see why, actually, um, um, it's important that Americans understand our constitutional history, um, how constitutional law operates. There's a difference between what a case says and what the Constitution says. There are ways of challenging cases that are claimed to be um, improper, even if they've been decided more than once. And I know, Andy, offline, you and I have talked about um, the fact that Roe versus Wade is hardly the only case in which the Supreme Court has weighed in.
0: Yes, like, for example, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey is a another uh, example. And in that case um, you had uh, justice O'Connor woman um, uh, weighing in on, on one side and um, uh, in effect citing the importance of precedent in Um, in that case.
1: Indeed. And, um, and Casey, honestly, okay. So I need to step back just a bit um, uh, and give the audience full disclosure. Um, Um, uh, Roe versus Wade was a 7-2 decision authored by Harry Blackmun, um, a Republican, a Nixon appointee. Most of the justices who actually were in the majority in Roe versus Wade were actually Republican appointees. Some of them, um, uh, like William Brennan and uh, Lewis Powell, were um, registered Democrats who had been appointed by Republican presidents. Uh, Brennan by Eisenhower, um, Powell by Nixon. But it's authored by Harry Blackman, a Republican appointed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon, joined by Potter Stewart, a Republican appointed by a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, um, joined by um, the Chief Justice um, Warren Burger, a um, Republican appointed by... Uh, Republican President Richard Nixon. So most of the justices in the majority were actually Republican appointees. Um, uh, Thurgood Marshall um, was not. Uh, uh, William Douglas was not. But the other five were Republican appointees, three Republicans, and two Democrat appointees. Um, uh, two dissenters, William Rehnquist, a Republican appointed by Richard Nixon, Republican, and Byron White, a Democrat appointed by Jack Kennedy, a Democrat. Okay. Okay. But after Roe versus Wade, the issue uh, became very partisan and Republicans moved hard against Roe versus Wade and Democrats um, um, moved hard in support of Roe versus Wade. This is part of many issues on which there's extreme polarization um, uh, in America today. But the full disclosure was is that Harry Blackman was a very good and decent human being, um, uh, in my, uh, um, and, and um, the full disclosure is that my brother clerked for Harry Blackman and loved Harry Blackman. That said, it is generally acknowledged that Roe versus Wade is not remotely a persuasive opinion. It doesn't even cite, doesn't even mention, uh, uh, quote, the constitutional text upon which it's allegedly based, which is the due process clause. And if it had, the first thing that uh, you would notice is due process. Seems to be about procedure, and yet the court really wasn't objecting to the procedure um, by which abortion was prohibited. It was objecting just to the substantive nature of the the um, the law. It, it claimed to be about privacy, but privacy seems to just ignore the the moral status of the um, unborn human life. Um, uh, um, and, uh, contraception is private; no one else is is um, involved, but is abortion really private? It, it, would it be um, private if it were um, one uh, 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 minute before um, delivery in a 39-week gestation? Would, that, would we say that's private? We would say that human um, uh, uh, entity um, uh, with 46 chromosomes in the womb um, that's actually viable um, at, at 38 weeks or 37 weeks um, is, um, uh, should be utterly disregarded as just a private decision. And if we wouldn't say that at 38 weeks, well, you know, where do we draw the line So It sort of um, it was circular and begging the question, let's imagine it's not human at all. Would you say that there's a right to, um, of every American to um, uh, skin alive um, uh, his or her cat or dog? We, we, we might say, no, cruelty to animal laws are permissible, and we wouldn't just talk about privacy because we would see the status of the entity on the other side. So, so privacy probably wasn't the right way to think about the issue. Um, or at least that's what critics of Roe have said. The court didn't mention the didn't quote the text of the Constitution, um, talked a lot more about a doctors' rights, and the doctors were always referred to as he and him and his. Um, The woman often dropped out of the analysis, um, came up with a a, a whole uh, elaborate trimester framework that seems to critics to just be um, made up out of whole cloth and did so claiming, oh, we're following earlier cases, but none of those earlier cases had involved abortion or anything like abortion. They had involved things like, Pornography in the home and contraception, um, uh, like say with um, the pill or or, or um, a diaphragm, um, um, in which there's no embryo or fetus or, or anything uh, like that involved. So so Rose critics said, "Wow, you just made that up. You went very you know far, very fast." Um, uh, and um and the full disclosure is, um, I like Terry Blackman. My brother loved Harry Blackman. Um, but um, many people who are pro-choice, myself included, um, uh, many eminent legal scholars have said Roe is not a particularly persuasive opinion. Oh, but there's Casey.
0: Yeah, so before we get on to Casey, I want to put this discussion that you just had into, into perspective here. So this is Amarica's Constitution, and we're talking a lot about, you know, Akil Amar's theories of the Constitution, and his scholarship, and also uh, putting it next to scholarship of other people that he that he may know, and so forth, um, uh, and having them push back against his theories of constitutional interpretation, and so forth. But here, I would say you're describe you're, you're in a difficult position because you're describing um, the objections to Roe versus Wade that people have had, as a matter of of, and I think what we're getting to here. Uh, eventually is a question of whether this is a controversy that is properly before the court It does right. you know whether or not whether or not it's you know this is how it should come out or that's how it should come out eventually we're going to be facing the question of whether this is actually so-called settled law if there is such a thing or whether it's a something that's properly before the court and one can discuss whether or not it can be before the court without committing you know, oneself to saying, I am not pro-choice, you know, or something like that. In other cool. words, one can be pro-choice and still be a professor of constitutional law and have and say, okay, here are the arguments for people that think that Roe versus Wade is not, is not great. And this is similar to, uh, a situ- so, so that in discussing this, I think that <laughs> I, I need to point out to our audience before, because this is a very emotional issue, um, and I think that before people get, you know, too upset about what, some of the things that you've said, that, um, I, I think that it, it's important to point out that this is not necessarily your, uh, settled opinion in the sense that you're not saying that, um, that, that abortion should be illegal or something like that. Not, your not point, at all. Right, um, so, so, uh,
1: um, uh, we, we, we kind of, you know, together, uh, you know, um, uh, humorously to call this podcast America's Constitution, but I don't call my books America's Constitution. I call them America's Constitution, and they're not about my personal views. And indeed, I'm highly critical of people like Erwin Chemerinsky who do not distinguish between their private um, or, or political views and their constitutional claims. So uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to remind the audience that on many of the biggest Issues of our era, my legal views, my constitutional views as an expert are different from my personal views. Um, um so my wife's a physician, she um uh uh, uh diagnoses cancer. Um, and you know, sometimes she says something. Well, I have to give cancer to this person. I say, you didn't give cancer to this person. You just diagnosed the person. Actually, had cancer. and You didn't want the person to have cancer at all. But she, she, she feels so bad. So, but so so. Um, I uh, I think that um, I'm uh, there's a constitutional law that's independent of my views. Um, and my job is actually to tell my audience what I think the proper constitutional. Um, answer to something is, which is independent of my personal views about what you know. Uh, I would like the outcome uh, the, um, of a contested policy matter to be. Um, so, just like Vanita doesn't want certain people to have cancer, but she looks at the cells and and they look carcinogenic and they look cancerous to her, malignant. Okay. So let me just uh, tell you, I personally am pro-choice. Um, I believe actually in. Um, Uh, the the, the sanctity of innocent, unborn human life, but I think um, uh, uh, government is often very clumsy in in regulating this. I tend to trust women more. They're complicated, um, moral and medical um, and and personal issues involved. Um, uh, So I'll just give you an example. There's a wanted pregnancy, a desperately wanted pregnancy, but... um, The uh, the uh, fetus um, is anencephalic, um, and uh, that means it doesn't have a proper skull. Um, Even if it were born alive, it would not be able to survive. It might be very cruel to actually expose the child in various ways. If if the abortion means if if the pregnancy is ended early because the child can't survive, um, you know, uh, ultimately, given current state of medical technology. If the procedure is done early, maybe that woman can have another child. This was a desperately wanted pregnancy. Um, But um, if um, uh, the procedure is prohibited, she may never be able to conceive again. So if you're pro-life, you know, you... you might say, listen, this is an agonizing issue, not my call. her life, and, 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 and government is going to be very blunt and insensitive um, to all the complexities involved in, in this person's medical situation and that person's ethical situation and uh, what have you. So I'm pro-choice, um, but I don't confuse what my personal views are with what the Constitution actually says. Let me give you three or four other examples. I personally don't have a gun in my home. I I never have. They scare me. Um, But I believe that you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-protection. And maybe in a future episode, we can talk about why that's so. And it's not just because of the Second Amendment, but because of the 14th Amendment and the history of gun confiscation um, against black Americans in in, uh, the 19th century and the Freedmen's Bureau Law, and actually unenumerated constitutional rights and state constitutional traditions that protect the right of people to have guns in their home for self-protection. I don't have one in mind, but if you want one in yours, I think that's your right. I personally um, am uh, strongly um, against the death penalty in almost all situations. Um, but I think there's certain situations where I would vote against the death penalty, where I would say, uh, but it's still not unconstitutional um, if, if my fellow citizens um, disagree. I'm a Democrat, um, but I think Citizens United um, is rightly decided, even though that puts me um, on the side of uh, only Republican-appointed justices. So um, those are some pretty big issues. Um, Citizens United, guns, um, death penalty, abortion, those aren't small issues in in, in America's culture and political conversation. And my political views... Are different from my constitutional views. Now, let me mention one person whom I really highly respect. But um, Andy, I, oh, you want to jump in, and then I'll I'll, I'll tell you about uh, other because we're talking as you te- as you began our conversation about authority. Who has authority? Who has respect? You know, uh, by whom? Whom should be listened to? shouldn't we I'll tell you about one of my role models um, on this um, issue because I told you someone who's not my role model who is a friend Erwin Chemerinsky who doesn't distinguish between his personal views political views and his constitutional claims.
0: well I think you know and we're, we're talking about the abortion situation and I think that one might go even a step further you could be um, you could be pro-choice you could make an argument, that Roe versus Wade is not properly decided, but you could also make an argument that abortion can nevertheless be constitutional just by a different argument. So it could very well be that Roe versus Wade is poorly argued, you know, poorly decided, because it doesn't find the the answer in the right place. And, for example, when we talk about guns, you know, you've talked about Heller, um, but... Heller locates itself mostly in the Second amendment as a and you find the answer to be mostly at least at least yes. partially in the 14th amendment so yeah so you can you can uh you know you might agree with the sort of the finding of roe versus Wade without agreeing with the rationale
1: yes and, and so I'm going to come back to that in, in just a, a minute absolutely right Andy so now we now we actually have to see because the great and powerful Oz has spoken, the Supreme Court, but that doesn't end the constitutional conversation at all, um, especially if what the great and powerful Oz said was deeply implausible, and not just to me, but to the broader legal community of um, um, with with respected experts, many of whom are pro-choice. That would be the gold standard. Lots of people like Akeel, who actually are pro-choice, who find... Um, Justice Blackman's opinion not well done at all. Um, one of them is named John Hart Ely. He's now um, deceased. John Ely um, was a graduate of the Yale Law School, clerked for um, Earl Warren, um, a Chief Justice of the United States, um, uh, was later a Yale Law School professor, then a Harvard Law School professor, then the dean of the Stanford Law School. He actually, um, uh, 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 when I was first on the teaching market, he, um, he, he actually you know, offered me a job. I, I came to Yale instead. A very great man. Um, um, his book, Democracy and Distrust, um, uh, was probably the most assigned, most read, most influential book on American constitutional law in a 50-year period, let's say between um, um, 1950 and uh, 2000, something like that. Um, uh, It sold more copies than um, any other book of its era, a serious scholarly book about the Constitution. And um, I think I'd have to double-check that my 2005 book, America's Constitution, a biography, May have actually uh, passed um, Ely's mark. That, I, was, I was trying to write a book um, um, uh, that uh, um, would kind of um, be an Ely-like book for the next generation. John Ely was emphatically pro-choice in his. Um, he was a liberal, um, uh, a Warren Court liberal, um, whose life work was basically defending the um, the legacy of the Warren Court. Um, uh, The book, uh, Democracy and Distrust, is – I'm going to read you the dedication page. You can tell a lot about books by their dedication. For Earl Warren, you don't need many heroes if you choose carefully. That's John Ely. John Ely wrote not only the most influential book for a general audience on constitutional law of its um, generation – Of its era. It's called Democracy and Distrust A Theory of Judicial Review. And it's a short book, um, including endnotes. It's uh, 270 pages. So, um, uh, Ely also wrote one of the 100 most cited articles of all time, indeed, one of the 20 most cited articles of all time. It's in the Yale Law Journal. It's called The Wages of Crying Wolf. It's a critique of Roe versus Wade. It came out right after. Roe was decided, um, and um, here's what he says. And remember, he's emphatically pro-choice. Um, Roe is a very bad decision. It is bad because it is bad constitutional law, or rather, because it is not constitutional. It is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be, because John Ely says constitutional law has to have some connection to the constitution, and Roe seems to have forgotten that. And um, so again, it's based on privacy, but all the privacy cases were, um, Blackman himself admitted, this is actually his phrase, inherently Different, Because none of them involved actually um, a, a life and being, an embryo or a fetus or anything like that. It involved things like contraception and pornography in the home, um, uh, erotic in the home. Um, so Roe wasn't so um, uh, well argued by uh, 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 in, in Blackman's opinion. But you say, what about Casey? Well, Casey made a couple of arguments. This is tw- you know, 25 years later. 20 years later. Um, uh, Roe is 72, 73, Casey is 92. Um, and Casey said, first, precedent, precedent, precedent. Okay, Roe is now decided. Um, uh, but the problem, um, uh, in part, with what Casey said is even while it's saying precedent, 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 it actually overruled some Supreme Court cases um, in, in, uh, uh, in the Roe um, line. It said, um precedent um, but it overruled cases it reinterpreted roe versus wade roe came up with a trimester framework and casey substituted a different formula undue burden okay so so even though it said roe 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 press precedent, precedent it didn't do that it was not quite fully honest it also said oh abortion isn't just about privacy it's about women's equality Good for Casey, that's a much better argument. Equality really is in the Constitution um, and um, but it said there was one or two sentences really about women's equality. It didn't develop it at great in great length. And here's the problem with the argument for women's equality. It's that I, I myself um, think it's a strong argument, but it has some real problems. How does women's equality distinguish between abortion at 38 weeks? abortion at 30 weeks, or abortion at um, 22 weeks, or 15 weeks, or five weeks. It's not so clear how you move from women's equality to um, some sort of um, uh, uh, trimester framework or even undue burden framework. How does equality deal with the awkward fact for those of us who are pro-choice that there are many anti-choice, or as they would prefer to be um, described, and I always try to pick a, a description that people pr- prefer, as a matter of respect, pro-life. How does the equality argument, the women's equality argument, deal with the basic reality that there are lots and lots of pro-life women who are supporting laws like the Mississippi law, indeed the Texas law? Remember, we are in a world now where more women are eligible to vote than men, and yet these laws are passing, and, 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 and presumably they're, they're passing – by elected legislatures that are elected by uh, the people of Texas and to repeat more women eligible to vote than men in Texas. And, and so the equality argument has to come to grips with that. And Casey doesn't really address it. And neither does um, justice Sotomayor or Breyer or Kagan in, in, in their pronouncements in the last um, few days. And they've had, and, and justice Breyer has had, more than 20 years to talk about this. He wrote an opinion that I sharply criticized about partial birth abortion um, in a, a very highly cited article of mine, that um, uh, the foreword I talked about, the document of the doctrine and, and he doesn't really address um, these issues. Um, so um, let me say one final thing about the law uh, in Roe versus Wade itself. Roe on my view was rightly decided on its facts, and easy, in fact, and Blackman doesn't come within 100 miles of seeing the easy argument for Roe's rightness on the facts of the case. On the facts of the case, what you need to understand is this was a law, a very draconian law, like the new Texas law, um, prohibiting abortions in all sorts of situations, um, 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 an outlier statute in some ways, and it was... um, passed in 1857, which is at a time when no woman voted. No woman ever voted for this law. It severely limits women's prospects. Um, It's going to be harder, for example, for for women to be, I I believe they have a right not just to vote, to be be voted for. They have a right to um, um, be eligible to the presidency and the vice presidency and to be speaker of the House and and senators. And, And women who don't control their reproductive freedom and are having babies that they don't want to have, at times that they don't want to have them, are going to have a harder time actually um, um, achieving all sorts of professional success, including professional success in the political domain. Um, I believe that a woman's um, place is in the House and the Senate. You know, and the presidency, you know, and planning on a woman's places in, in the home. Um, uh, so Roe was easy on its facts, but Blackman didn't even mention this thing that it was passed by an all male legislature and it never received the votes of any woman. But that's different, you see, than the law that recently passed. And, and the court hasn't really elaborated. The, the, the women's equality argument um, uh, and the, the problems with the women's equality argument, which today include the fact that the women vote.
0: Okay, so here's where we are in the discussion then. We've, we've established that um, there is a controversy over Roe versus Wade, that the, that the, um, the decision itself, uh, that, that passing a law that flies in the face of Roe versus Wade is part of the constitutional process because that's how one of the ways in America that we can challenge uh, a previous Supreme court decision. You can't really challenge the constitution. You know, you can amend it, but you can't, you can't say, um, uh, that, uh, you know, the house of Representatives do- doesn't exist, you know, or something like that.
1: Really? Let me just, let me put, put that in Bobbit terms. Cause this is a deep fact that I think has huge implications. No court has ever said, we are authorized to disregard this patch of constitutional text or that one, unless there's been a subsequent amendment. No court has ever said that. No person in their confirmation hearings has ever said anything like that because the Constitution itself is, to borrow a phrase, the supreme law of the land. That's how it describes itself in Article 6. But courts do overrule precedents. All the time, one or two a year on average, at the US Supreme Court, even today. Our audience very famously knows that Brown versus Board of Education, although technically didn't overrule Plessy versus Ferguson, sharply distinguished Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, um, all but overruled it, buried it. Um, uh, Casey, while purporting to um, follow Roe, actually reinterpreted Roe in a dramatic way um, and overruled. Formally and expressly to post Roe cases. So, um, so now we're seeing in Bobbitt terminology, there's a huge difference between Supreme Court interpretations, which are provisional and can be overruled and have been overruled. A landmark case in the 20th century is called Erie versus Tompkins. We've talked about it before in our Neil Gorsuch um, episodes and talked about Bush versus Gore. that overruled expressly an earlier case called Swift versus Tyson. Um, our audience, I'm sure, knows the famous um, flag burning case, West Virginia versus Barnett, holding unconstitutional a law that um, uh, I assume um, not not the flag burning flag salute case. Um, there was um, a West Virginia law that required school children to salute the flag, and actually, in West Virginia, it wasn't a hand over the heart salute; it was a stiff armed salute that looked rather Mussolini and Hitler like. And and West Virginia um, punished school children, public school children, who refused to salute the the flag, even for religious reasons. And the court said, you can't do that. That's an unconstitutional statute. But West Virginia versus Barnett overruled an earlier Supreme Court case that was only three years old, uh, um, the the Gavitis case, that had held the contrary. So some of the most important moments in America have involved The court actually overturning its own erroneous decisions. Recently, the court announced that um, Korematsu um, um, was no longer good law. Um, uh, That was in the Trump versus Hawaii case. The court, in effect, formally um, um, overruled, at least in its dicta, and its language, um, the Korematsu case. In Casey... The justices said, "We believe Plessy versus Ferguson was wrong the day it was decided." Um, so, so all of that is part of our legal tradition, and the text is different. It's sacrosanct, and and that's a Bobbitt I, in an intuition that the document isn't the same thing as the doctrine. The doctrine is provisional and can be revisited, but the text is the text is the text. No. What the text means, of course, we're going to have to figure out, but, but, but no justice has ever said, I admit the text means X. I admit that the framers meant X clearly, that everyone who uh, uh, wrote, voted for that meant X. I admit all of that. I admit there's no subsequent constitutional amendment that changes all that. Still, I'm going to disregard X. No justice has ever openly said something like that. No one in his or her confirmation hearings has ever said, I think justices can do that. Um, If I'm confirmed, I'll I'll feel myself open to do that. And they've all admitted, every one of them, that precedents can be and have been overturned. And now you're going to ask me a question about this really fraught word, settled, which I heard you mention before.
0: Right. Well, that's right. I mean, I, uh, so for example, when justice Kavanaugh came up for his, uh, confirmation, uh, that he had a meeting with uh, Senator Collins and after the meeting with Senator Collins, it came out that, uh, that justice Kavanaugh had, according to, to Senator Collins said that Roe versus Wade was settled law. That, that was a phrase. And that phrase appears in the news media around then in quotes, you know, time and time again. So it's, Let's just assume for the purpose of discussion that he used those words, okay, since people keep quoting it. Um, So then the question becomes, well, what does that mean? And this is in the context, I think, of a citizen reading the newspaper recently and seeing this Texas law is passed, and it says heartbeat. Everyone knows that's five, six, or seven weeks. And obviously flying in the face of Roe. Obviously. And so... The, the, the response of many people emotionally is, how can this be? I mean, how can Texas be so audacious as to fly in the face of settled law? This is what our Constitution says, as the Supreme Court has said. So how can they do it? It's flagrantly, as Justice Sotomayor said in her opinion, her dissent, flagrantly unconstitutional. I believe those are the words that she, that she used. Um, yeah. So, so, how do you tie all this together? It seems like it's tied together by the discussion we've been having.
1: Yeah, but the, but the one thing you can't say is that something is flagrantly unconstitutional when um, the text of the Constitution doesn't speak to the issue clearly at all, um, and for um, uh, and the issue is deeply contested among. Um, uh, uh, um, genuine scholars in the field, and um, for 40 years, at least, one of our two major pr- political parties has said, we don't consider this settled at all. We think it's actually wrong and outrageous. We think it's just like Dred Scott, and we're going to push back against it. And they keep telling us that again and again and again, and they actually win more elections that they're, than they have lost, probably, in that four-year period at the state level, at the federal level, um, at the Senate level, and when one party again and again and again wins presidential elections and c- wins control of the Senate and puts justices on the Supreme Court, um, uh, all of whom are basically think think that Roe was wrongly decided, um, every single person basically on Trump's list thinks that – what does it mean when they mouth the words settled law, if they did? And again, um, let's imagine. It. So if in a certain context you say to someone, I love you, you know, and they say, I, I love you too, um, but I might actually pay a lot of attention to how they say that, like, love you, love you too, babe, or something, you know, versus looking you deeply in the eyes and saying, and I love you. Like I love Life itself or something like that so 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 but it's precisely that it's not settled and we all know that because if it really were settled why would you have to say it you know because it would be obvious so it's but but um, america's constitution just by way of reminder even if you think it's all about the courts i don't it's a conversation which the citizenry is involved that's why we have this podcast um, where um, presidents make constitutional decisions and they matter, um, and sen- senators make constitutional decisions and they matter. And we talked about that, for example, with presidential impeachment, where the Senate was going to make the key constitutional decisions. But even if you were a total court worshiper, you thought it's all about the court, and the court has said Roe versus Wade, fine, but there's a process of court replenishment, and that is a political process in which presidents picked by the citizenry, and Senate um, and nominate and senators picked by the citizenry confirm, and the Republican Party platform every four years says with crystal clarity that Roe is outrageous and should be um, um, repudiated. So, like, was it news that there are actually not five but six justices who think that Roe is um, a shonda, You know that it's um, um, it's outrageous. Now, even if they think that. Precedent might be a weight. Precedent might count to some extent. Um, and now we need to talk about how um, a precedent might um, count. Here are some of the factors. that. that um, so a justice might say, at the end of the day, I've taken my oath of office to the Constitution, not to the Supreme Court, not to the case law. That's what my ultimate fidelity has to be. I agree with Amar that at the end of the day, the document trumps the doctrine but you know uh unless god actually god himself sends a dove of, of uh, uh um of from heaven to land on my shoulder and and and, and tell me that the the revealed truth you know uh, the commandments are, you know uh come down to me on you know uh, on on sinai um i'm i think i know what the constitution means but can i be a hundred percent sure hmm I'm on, you know, I, I don't think Roe is right, but let's imagine, okay, uh, forget Roe, just a case. I think the case seems wrong to me. On the other hand, that case was decided by let's imagine, John Marshall, and, and, and he knew a lot about He's an authority. He was closer to the founding than I am. That might be a big weight with me, That Joseph Story and John Marshall thought X, because I intended to think, I intended to incline to the view that the Constitution doesn't mean X. But Story and Marshall thought so, hmm, okay. It was a unanimous court that decided that. Well, that that matters to me because they were all people sitting in my position trying to do the right thing in good faith, and 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 they thought otherwise. So doesn't does is that a weight that they were unanimous? Yeah, probably. Is that a weight that they were particularly well respected? Yes, law is ad hominem. We often say in parenthesis, Marshall Chief Justice or something. And that's why our audience needs to know. Whom they should pay attention to and not, and why they should pay attention to John Ely. He 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 actually deserves his high status, and and I've been telling you and this is a little awkward, but I don't feel that way about uh, my friend Urban Chamerinsky, truthfully. Um, and he's cited a lot, but I'm saying, oh, and I'm an expert, but but he's not cited across the board, and just and conservatives don't respect him the way liberals and conservatives respect John Ely. There I said it. Okay. Uh, um. Um, and, um, so what, what else would count as suppose this ca- decision has been affirmed again and again and again, well, that might add more weights to it. What would count on the other side? Wow. it come. It, it was not very well reasoned at all. Roe versus Wade and Harry Blackman's opinion. Um, yes, it's been reaffirmed. It was never unanimous. Yes, it's been reaffirmed many times, but never unanimously, and one of our major parties you know, has always deeply contested it, um, and the, um, their, the equality argument hasn't really been very carefully elaborated. Um, by its uh, uh, judicial uh, proponents and exponents, at least, and and even if it were elaborated, the um, um, and they never has the court come close to addressing the problem of pro-life women and how the women's equality argument um, uh, basically an, a- allows you to say um, ten weeks no, but twenty weeks yes, um, or anything like that. So so um, um, here's what settled law does. If you're a lower court judge, you are bound by a Supreme Court precedent until the Supreme Court itself has changed the precedent. And there's a case that actually says that it's called Shearson. So one thing the settled law does mean is if you're a lower court judge, um, that's the law for you because you're a judge on an inferior court and it's inferior to the Supreme Court, but it's precisely – The the role of the Supreme Court, if it so chooses, to modify, adjust, and even overrule um, uh, cases um, if it thinks that that's the better understanding of the Constitution.
0: Okay, so so that, again, where we are here in this discussion is that, although it might seem astounding to a citizen that Texas is flying in in the face of clear precedent, um, and doing so brazenly, one might say, this is still part of our system this is the way things happen this is the way the law is tested when when there is not unanimity or or consensus Um, and mississippi
1: has has had previously done that and the court
0: actually agreed to hear the case okay but there's more to the law than that there's more to the texas law than that and it's it i've been reading you know articles that say it's it's innovative you know it's uh it, it, it's brilliantly drafted, you know, and so forth or whatever. Um, and this has to do with precisely what we observed with before the Supreme Court recently, which was that the, um, normally these, te- these laws are tested because um, you, know, you pass the law and then you sue the state that passed the law, or you sue the, you know, the attorney general of the state that passed the law or something like that. But in this case, the law specifically bars Texas elected officials from enforcing the law. Instead, its enforcement provisions are considered innovative, that it relies on um, individual citizens uh, to, or I suppose groups of citizens could do so as well, um, to file suit. And then it provides some bounties and other incentives for them to do so. So some people are saying, well, This means that there's no target to hit, so you can't really stop enforcement of the law, and um, that's outrageous, you know, and so forth. Um, Because how can you have a law that you can't challenge? Um, So, uh, or that if you do challenge the incentives that the the law creates or the barriers uh, on the part of those who would challenge it are, are erected so high that it becomes very difficult to challenge. So, for example, that a, a abortion doctor performing a, uh, an abortion might worry that he would be su- he or she would be sued by every citizen in the state of Texas, each of whom would have ten thousand dollars to gain, uh, plus legal fees, and the a doctor would not, under the law, would be barred from even seeking legal fees on his end. So, um, so these are some of the some of the arguments that we've that, that we've come across. So let's discuss it because the question is are these creating are, are these do these barriers actually exist and this would seem to be outside of the system if you can't challenge the law so can the law be challenged
1: yes easily and um and if my ideas had pre- prevailed even more easily than currently um so since i mentioned the document and the doctrine which is an Uh, forward to the Harvard Law Review in 2000. Um, And in that forward, I actually sharply criticized uh, Stephen Breyer's opinion in a case involving partial birth abortion. Um, And that was not an extreme law. Um, And he said held it was unconstitutional. And and in an earlier episode, I read to the audience my critique of Justice Breyer's opinion. And I love Justice Breyer. And I clerked for him and I respect him deeply. Um, And I said, this is a huge mistake. Because all you said, you, you said in your article, um, press and press and press, and, but you can't. You have to explain why Roe was right. Because to, in to, the year two thousand, it's not a state secret that, that people are persuaded by Roe. And even if they were, Roe wasn't about partial birth abortion. It's a totally different issue. Um, it uh, uh, regulates only a small group of of very late term abortions, and that's not what Roe versus Wade was about. And you were constitutionalizing a position, Justice Breyer, that makes38 you know, 30, um, 30 state laws unconstitutional. That's a bit of a problem. You're constitutional as a position to the left of Al Gore, because Al Gore in his presidential debate um, against uh, George W. Bush did not take that position. And I worried that the Democratic Party was actually positioning itself too far to the left and the Supreme Court was constitutionalizing all of that. And that was going to generate a backlash. Um, and that's what I thought twenty years ago. People can now decide whether it generated a backlash because I think today Justice Breyer would would be happy if he could stop that Texas law and the Mississippi law. And just make a concession about um, partial birth abortion, which is a very, very um, uh, affects a, a vanishingly small percentage of of actual procedures in, in America or something. The reader in, in uh, that article would um, see me make at least three points that are relevant today, and then I'll tell you about another article I wrote. And um, one, the Constitution is different than what the Supreme Court says about it. There's the document and there's the doctrine. Two, at the end of the day, I say. Um, the document trumps, the, the, the Constitution trumps the president if they really are not in, in conflict. Three, I actually talk about um, Roe versus Wade and the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence in the context of a case that year called Stenberg v. Carhartt. Okay, so that's the document and the doctrine, and, um, and it's taking positions 20 years ago on stuff that's relevant today. Now, I wrote this earlier article. It's the first article I ever wrote. As a law professor, um, it's called "A Sovereignty and Federalism." It's in the Yale Law Journal, and again, you see, you see always these implicit appeals to authority. Oh, it's in the Harvard Law Review. Oh, it's in the Yale Law Journal. Yeah, because those are cues; those are signals that these are um, significant pieces. Um, uh, but as we talked about before, um, what do law law students know? They're the ones who decide where to publish. So, um, the better um, criteria you said in an earlier conversation is um, not the ex-ante decision where it gets published, but the ex-post decision of many, many individual scholars to cite or not cite a particular article. Um, "Of Sovereignty and Federalism is my most cited article of all time. Um, it's one of the 60, 70 most cited articles um, in all of, of uh, the, uh, the law world. In it, I say you should be allowed, you have rights against the government. Um, and when the government violates those rights, you should be able to sue the government itself by name because the government isn't sovereign. We the people are. The Constitution limits all governments, state and federal, in the name of the Constitution. When a government violates something in the Constitution, it really isn't sovereign. It's something that the ultimate sovereign, the people, have actually prohibited. And for every right, there should be a remedy. And if the government violates your rights, you should be able to sue the government itself, the United States or the state of Texas, by name for a declaratory judgment. That is just a declaration that, you're right, that, that, that the government has violated your rights for an injunction, if appropriate, that the government can't enforce some law that violates your rights against state or federal. Damages if the government has actually intruded upon you in the, in the past in any way. That's a MARS. Um, argument. he makes. Uh, I make other arguments in that piece. The court has actually not accepted those arguments. The liberal justices, so-called, on the court have actually not done what I urged them to do long ago, and now they're paying the price. Uh, Stephen Breyer has never said you should be, be able to just sue the U.S. Um, government as such when it violates the Constitution, because these aren't just rules about Texas or California or Arkansas or Mississippi. They're rules about all governments, state and federal, um, and I say, oh, it should be actually easy to get into court. In fact, Justice Breyer and some of the other justices on the liberal side have have written opinions saying it should be it's hard to get into court. And those are the very cases that are being thrown back at them um, by the procurium, um, uh, saying, okay, these plaintiffs can't come to court. And why can't they come to court? Because prosecutor hasn't an, you know, um, isn't the one who's going to enforce this law. So they can't bring a lawsuit against the prosecutor. You say, well, then they're out of luck. No. So I'm saying in a, in a Mars world, it would have been very easy. They should have been able to sue even, you know, before the law went into effect. They should have been allowed to sue Texas, but they're not allowed to because of various, in my view, misinterpretations of things like the 11th Amendment and sovereign immunity. We won't go into that in great detail right now, but, but let me just tell you how you can actually provide a remedy. It's not as good as if my ideas had been accepted, but the instant any deputy in Texas, any private person tries to initiate a lawsuit, let's say, let's let's call him Dr. Lipka. He's the um, physician who's providing this um, medical service um, in violation of the statute. Let's say it's 10 weeks. um, And the statute says, oh, it can't be after six. Dr. Lipka is a brave doctor. He does it anyway. Someone sues him. The minute they sue him under state law... He can counter sue them. They are acting under color of government law, and because there's a federal statute, it's called 1983. He can sue them and um, for damages that they're inflicting upon him for attorneys' fees. There's a statute called 1988 that goes along with 1983. So anytime anyone tries to sue him under state law, he can sue them back under federal law. Now here's the key. If he actually does have a right to do what he is doing, or more um, uh, to the point, his patient has a, a right to uh, procure his services. Because really, it's the woman's right that's the center of the thing. Um, even though Dr. Lipka is in the crosshairs, um, if he's right about that, when it gets in, when it works its way through the court system, the Supreme Court will. Um, side with him, whether by simply encanting Roe versus Wade or by saying, actually, we revisit Roe, but even when revisiting Roe, this goes too far. This, you know, Roe um, uh, was a mistake, but but this goes way too far. Um, if he wins on that, then um, he doesn't have to pay um, the person who brought the lawsuit against him. They may have to pay him. But on the other hand, if he didn't, if the court uses this opportunity as, a, uh, uh, as an occasion to overrule the entire body of, of uh, abortion jurisprudence, oh, well, then he's very vulnerable. And let me tell you one case uh, in which that, this was the posture. It comes from um, my hometown, my uh, home state. Griswold versus Connecticut involved contraception, not abortion. Connecticut had passed a law making it a crime or making um, subject to criminal penalty to actually um, use contraception in the home, even if you were a married couple. Um, and, and doctors who prescribed contraception were aiders and abettors. And one lawsuit um, was brought by Planned Parenthood. It was called Poe versus Omen. And the court says we're not going to hear it because the state isn't enforcing the law. I mean, it's on the books, but they're not enforcing it, so we're not going to hear it. Similar to what the court just did in Texas. But then thereafter, Connecticut started enforcing that law. They went a a, a doctor pre- actually prescribed contraception. A brave doctor. This would be the doctor Lipka um, in uh, uh, and his name was Griswold. He actually prescribed contraception. He was prosecuted by Connecticut, and his defense was, "I had an absolute right to do this because my patients had an absolute right to procure contraception and indeed use it in their home." Um, And the Supreme Court agreed, Um, and so um, he won his lawsuit. Um, They they tried to Connecticut had tried to fine him, tried to punish him, and the Supreme Court said, "No, Connecticut can't do that."
0: Did he recover damages against Connecticut?
1: Um. That I don't think so, but I would need to, uh, you know, go back and and litigate. but so but, he, he but under have, your he theory, may, he
0: he would be he would be eligible to do so. He, he might
1: have been able. Well, there, there's a particular problem because in my world, you could sue Connecticut directly. Um, uh, under a th- 1983, but there are two cases. One's called Quern versus Jordan, Will versus Michigan, which the court has, has somehow read 1983 not to apply against the government itself, but only individuals. Oh, here's why in a Mars world you need to sue the government itself. Because here's what the court lets you do to sue individuals, you know, maybe the prosecutor, maybe the police officer, um, the school teacher who improperly suspended you, or the principal or something. You can sue um uh, individuals acting under color of state law but the court doesn't quite easily let you sue the state itself but amar says listen sometimes only this is what i wrote in 1987 only a lawsuit against the government itself is going to provide a full remedy let's imagine for example there's a right to public education um in the constitution um the, that's a right that the government as such owes. You can't sue an individual principal or um, a, a school teacher. It's a right. Suppose the government breaches a contract with you in a, a violation of the Constitution. The entity that's breaching the contract is not some um, government official here or there, it's the government as such. In this Texas case, it's the Texas law that's fundamentally wrong, purporting to deputize, you know, all these people to, to go after Doctor Doctor Lipka or, or anyone else. And since It's the it's Texas who has violated the Constitution. It's Texas law. You should be able to sue Texas itself. Um, Now, in Griswold versus Connecticut, um, there are all these rules. um, Even 1983 doesn't let you sue prosecutors. There's prosecutorial immunity. There's sovereign immunity. So, so I don't think they he fully recovered because the court actually limited. The remedial sweep of some of these statutes that I say should be read more broadly.
0: Now it sounds like, based on that formulation, that Texas is outsmarting itself because um, it's by deputizing the uh, you know the individuals, it's making them subject to these lawsuits. Uh, they unless they lawsuit- can, unless they can cloak themselves, <clears> then <throat> this is you know you and I discussed this offline, and you said no, it's it's not sovereign immunity, but unless they can cloak themselves in this immunity that you've been discussing, whether it's, you know, whatever you might call it, um, then they would be subject to, law, to, to yeah, the it, suit. It,
1: it, their, their lawyers should tell them, be careful. If you initiate a lawsuit, you open yourself up to a countersuit, not under Texas state law, right. but under federal law. And if their lawyers don't understand that, their lawyers are not doing their clients any favors at all. But again, that's only if they win on The merits and 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 the merit here has
0: to do not with the Texas law per se, like like whether or not they could deputize them or whatever, but rather in whether the doctor had a federal right, federal constitutional right, to perform the abortion because Because Roe versus Wade is correct
1: because his patient. Has a constitutional right, right to procure the service because Roe tended to talk way too much about the doctor, doctor, doctor. Mm-hmm. Harry Blackman, he was general counsel of the Mayo Clinic. So it was the doctor, the doctor, the doctor. Um, let me mention one final thing, you know, and I think that then I think we've actually beautifully illuminated these issues. So we've talked about privacy versus equality. We've talked about an old law that no woman voted for versus a new law that many women are voting. Um, for we've talked about the document versus the doctrine we've talked about some of the procedural complexities about suing and being sued and bringing in the sovereignty and federalism the final point is how much of an outlier is texas how extreme is it um not because of the deputization um uh, wrinkle but just the, the five to six week um heartbeat trigger and here's the point uh, let me take. Griswold versus Connecticut, which I invoked, let me talk briefly about guns and homes, which we mentioned before, Heller, and then let me take the Roe law and the Texas law. Here's a third re- way to think about possible unconstitutionality um, in this context. We talked about privacy. I don't think privacy is very helpful because it assumes away the fetus, and even if you're willing to assume the fetus away at um, three weeks or four weeks or seven weeks, even though there's a heartbeat, are you willing to assume the fetus away at 30 weeks, at 35 weeks? Ooh, it's a problem. Um, and even if they're not persons, they're not born yet, animals aren't persons. Yet. We believe in statutes that prohibit cruelty to animals. At least I believe in them, and, and most of my fellow Americans do, and, and there are many laws, and the courts don't hold those unconstitutional. So we talked about privacy. The law in um, Griswold versus Connecticut itself was an outlier law. Only in there are 50 states, and only Connecticut of all the states, my home state, only my home state made it a crime for married couples to use contraception in their home. And uh, Justice Harlan, the younger uh, conservative Republican appointed by uh, Dwight Eisenhower, actually um, said, This law is un American. Um, It's just outside of the mainstream. in America, there are uh, the basic um, uh, rights that we take for granted. They come from tradition and custom. Um, are, um, th- this is a kind of Burkean argument, and Connecticut is outside of the mainstream. It's an outlier. That's Griswold. Some of the laws about in uh, um, the regulated guns, like the Law and Heller, were really outliers. They, they were extreme and draconian and only a few jurisdictions, Tried to prevent anyone from having a gun in their home for self-protection, and 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 Chicago was one of those jurisdictions. A case called City of Chicago versus McDonald. Um, DC was another one of those jurisdictions. So maybe those were just outlier jurisdictions. Um, uh, um, and now take Roe on the other side. Roe went way too far, way too fast because its trimester framework actually. Um, meant that the laws of 49 of the 50 states were unconstitutional. Only New York State was Roe compliant. Federal law violated, um, on the books, violated um, Roe's rules. The laws of 49 states violated Roe's trimester rules. Only New York was Roe compliant. So now you see that Roe went way too far, way too fast. But one thing that could be said is, wow, this Texas law is really out there. It's way extreme. It's, It's way to the right of Mississippi. And now, the tricky thing is, how many other states would try to do the same thing if they knew they could? Would it be two states? Would it be 20 states? And if it's 20 states, maybe you can't say that this is an outlier statute. Um, but if it were two states, um, um, maybe it is an outlier statute. And, 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 and I'm using states here as a little bit of a proxy. We'd, want, we'd pay attention to whether they were big states or small states. Texas, in fact, is the second biggest state.
0: Okay. So, um, all right. now, when the Supreme Court heard this, uh, or you know didn't hear it, uh, when the Supreme Court ruled recently that it was that it was not going to hear the case at this point, um it divided five uh, six three, so five four, pardon me, divided five four. Um, and it divided somewhat ideologically, which is yes. a little bit strange because a lot of our discussion, today has been about the fact that this really was not about the merits of Roe versus Wade. In other words, their decision here was whether or not it was properly before them yet because there was no you know, plaintiff or whatever. Um, so uh, it's a little strange that that would divide ideologically. But putting that aside, um, we still saw mm-hmm. that, uh, that you had justices Barrett, Alito, Thomas, uh, and uh, Kavanaugh. Um, on on one side, and then, you know, the liberal justice plus Chief Justice Roberts on the other side. And, you know, before I was talking about the fact that you were explaining the thinking of those who criticized Roe versus Wade without saying that it was necessarily your opinion. Um, And here, I think you probably found on a personal level that you were being tarred with Justice Kavanaugh's uh, decision here. Um, so when we go back to your testimony um, before the Senate, did you predict that Justice Kavanaugh would be pro-choice? Uh,
1: wonderful. Um, and let, let, let me actually go through all the justices just a, a, a bit. So first, let me do the pure legal analysis. Um, and then let me tell you what I did tell my fellow citizens um, very emphatically in the confirmation process. So, on my view, from a purely legal point of view, the five justices in the procurement really did have a point. They said it's not clear who to sue because no one has actually stepped forward to um, uh, enforce this law. Um, and there are cases that have made it hard. To bring um, a, a, a lawsuit in this situation, I criticize all those cases, all those documents. In a Mars world, you should be able just to bring a lawsuit, even if you you don't know who's going to enforce the law. You could just say in Ray Texas law in regard to. There doesn't even have to be a V, um, like Roe v. Wade, Dred um, Scott v. Sanford, Brown v. Board. That's a controversy when there are two sides. But but in my view. This actually doesn't have to be a controversy. If you read, strictly speaking, the language of Article 3, it has to be a case. And all a case means is it has to arise under um, federal law, and federal law includes the Constitution. And so someone should be allowed to come to court. And they, it could be Lipka versus Texas, or it could just be in Ray this Texas statute. So that's if, – if they had adopted – Um, my uh, framework of sovereignty and federalism would be much easier for litigants to come to court to to raise constitutional claims. Um, But my views didn't prevail. The cases that make it difficult to come to court include ones written by liberals, like um, a case that Justice Breyer wrote called California versus Texas about the Obamacare um, uh, litigation. Um, And I thought that that was unfortunate. He said... You know, states can't bring a lawsuit to challenge Obamacare. My claim would be, listen, if Obamacare is um, uh, beyond the powers of the federal government, that does violate the rights of states because they're the ones who are reserved rights holders. They should be allowed to bring a suit. Um, So the case should have, um, um, uh, when Texas tried to bring down Obamacare, Texas should have lost not because, as the Breyer opinion wrote, Texas can't come to court, but because you know it can't um, on the merits, the Obamacare law is perfectly valid. But that's not what the liberals said. Um, they said Texas can't come to court. And the conservatives um, last week threw that case right back in the teeth of Justice Bryce saying, "Well, you know, if Texas can't you know come to court, neither can these folks you know bring in a lawsuit against Texas. Um, you are the one who came up with all these rules about not being able to come to court. So, so." on the law if we take seriously the precedence on who can sue oh the, majo- the majority had a point now those precedents themselves should be reconsidered you know in my view <clears throat> if it's fair game to for texas to push back against roe versus wade it should be fair game you know for a reproductive rights litigants to push back on the, st- the the so-called standing rules in the case or controversy rules in california versus texas but 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 if those um, precedents are on the books, the majority, even forget that. Here's a second argument the majority said. We generally don't hear lawsuits. We don't jump in before courts below have, have uh, discussed the issue. So that wasn't preposterous. Um, and there are other ways to challenge the law, as we've just talked about. As soon as it goes into effect, there can be litigation and it can come to the Supreme Court. And there so, will be. Yes. So I didn't think what the majority did per curum was outrageous. And here's the thing, they hate Roe versus Wade. They weren't gonna actually, you know, go out of their way one inch to help these litigants. Um, But on the law, they had a good point. So that explains them. Now, what explains Justice Sotomayor, Kagan and Breyer? Well, I think they're trying to pump up the volume to get people to pay attention, but that's a political analysis. I think on the law, I'm not so sure they actually were right. And even if they were right, I do not appreciate and admire their tone about flagrant and blatant because that's not what this is. It's not flagrant and blatant because it's not clearly in the constitution. Um, uh, and um, they're not clearly five votes for it. So that means it is contested. And um, so, so, uh, but if it is contested, you can understand why they're trying to get their side to pay attention to this. They're sending a political signal and the journalists are jumping. And yes, if you, my fellow um, citizens in the audience, if you like me are pro-choice, pay attention, vote. This is for real. These laws are being forced. for decades. Republicans have basically been pandering to their base, passing laws that they know won't go into effect because the courts will stop them, and they're they're getting a free ride. Their their coalition is is saying yes, yes, yes. You're um, um, and and no one is feeling, but they, but it's free. They're not paying a political price because actually. Um, uh, the pro-choice folks are still getting access to the reproductive services. Now it matters, so you have to show up to vote in the off year and in state elections. And like, So if that's what Justice Sotomayor is doing, I understand it. I don't love it because it's political, but I understand it the same way that RBG, one of her greater dissents, raised dissents, was in the Lily Ledbetter case saying, Congress, you've got to pay attention to this because this is unjust. So maybe that's what Justice Sotomayor is doing. I would prefer if she had said it without saying flagrant and blatant, just saying now it really matters. And this, if this is going to be decided politically, people have to pay attention on both sides because they can't count on, on the court anymore to protect um, a Roe versus Wade, as they traditionally have understood. Now, how about Roberts then? Why is he not siding with the conservatives? Because he's, as we talked about before, chief justice. Yes, has their institutional obligations. He does not love it that the court looks political. He does not love it if um, the, the court is highly polarized. So, so um, um, uh, he, remember, he's the one who crossed the aisle in Obamacare litigation. So it's not a shock to me. Uh, that, that 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 maybe he's actually saying, "Oh, Steve Breyer, I'm with you on some things. Don't step down early. You know, we we have things in common." And it's not clear whether Breyer is playing him or he's playing Breyer. That connects to our earlier conversations about all this. But but even if you see Breyer gets him, the game is counting to five, not to four. Um, and so the question is, if Breyer can get Roberts, can Roberts, when the case ultimately you know, reaches the Supreme Court and the merits, get Kavanaugh? And if not. OK, so so now back to so, so it's all comes down to Kavanaugh. So here's what I said. Um, uh, so let's just we're going to go through all the justices. One quick time that we had before. Clarence Thomas thinks that um, in order of seniority, Clarence Thomas thinks that Roe versus Wade is Dred Scott. It's a disgrace. And 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 he's a clear vote to overrule it. Um, and and he doesn't think that there's any constitutional right. And what Texas did is fine by him. And that's Sam Alito, too, I predict. That, that's my honest sense of them. And uh, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just I'm trying to see who they are and listen to who they are. They think deep in their bones, this is Dred Scott. It's not merely Lochner's Dred Scott. And I think Gorsuch is probably close to being with them, and Amy Coney Barrett is. She might have some anxiety about overturning precedent. But deep down, she's, she wrote about this as a scholar. And deep down, and cited some of my work as a scholar before she was a justice, I think she said, in general, I tend to be with Amar in thinking the document trumps the doctrine, that precedent should be overruled if it's clearly unconstitutional. And then the question is, um, is Roe versus Wade merely wrong or clearly wrong, clearly unconstitutional? And, And that takes us to our earlier conversation about how much weight you give epistemically respect-wise to the fact that there were many judges over many years in many cases who seem to think otherwise. Down to Kavanaugh, because you're right. I testified on his behalf, and I want to read you what I wrote in an, a newspaper um, op-ed in Maine, which is designed for um, uh, uh, Senator Collins and her constituents. And here's, um, and I appended it to my Senate testimony. And I, um, I said the following: Senator Collins cares deeply about women's reproductive rights. So do I. Unborn human life is precious, but pregnancies and potential pregnancies can raise intricate medical and moral complexities. And in this domain, I generally trust women more than I trust government officials. So I'm telling the audience I'm pro-choice, as is Senator Collins. But now, here's my honest assessment, though of who Kavanaugh is and where he is, on issues of reproductive choice, meaning abortion, there are no guarantees that a future Justice Kavanaugh would rule the same way that Senator Collins might prefer in the pro-choice direction. But that is equally or more true of all the other would-be nominees on Trump's long list. If Collins were to sink Kavanaugh, Trump could easily nominate someone Else, who would be less open to Collins' vision of reproductive rights, but harder for Senator Torpedo. Consider, for example, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Remember, she wasn't on the court at the time. An earnest acolyte of Anton Scalia with a compelling life story, but much less personal exposure to liberals and, less, and a less distinguished judicial track record moderates and liberals should be careful what we wish for so i'm saying fine you can ding kavanaugh because you think he's bad on Roe, but you're going to get someone else who's bad on Roe, as you know or maybe even worse on on Roe. those are your choices because we lost the presidency we lost the, the, the senate and then i have a couple of paragraphs on precedent in which i say um, um uh, uh senator collins has repeatedly spoken of the importance of selecting jurors who respect precedent and they say precedent is indeed important, but more so for lower court judges, who must faithfully follow what the Supreme Court has decreed in past cases. And as a lower court judge, Brett Kavanaugh has a you know um, a good record of affirmance by the Supreme Court. And they say, but precedent operates differently in the Supreme Court itself. So do not expect that uh, that Justice Kavanaugh is going to actually. Um, feel that he's absolutely bound to apply uh, um, uh, Roe versus Wade um, expansively. Um, in fact, there's a real chance that he's going to restrict Roe versus Wade or vote uh, ultimately to overturn Roe versus Wade. So I was as clear, I thought, as I could be to my fellow Americans. So um, did Justice Kavanaugh, you know, um, was he as clear if he, if he said settle law? You decide. Was just was Senator Collins really you know persuaded by that, or did she just see what she wanted to see because she didn't want to admit she's voting for someone you know who's a real um, poss- a threat to to overturn Roe versus Wade? You have to decide um, that. Did Justice um, uh, uh, Sotomayor pump up the volume in a way that was more political than legal? You, my fellow citizens, have have to decide that. What were Breyer's motivations and Roberts' motivations and all of this? You decide. Here's the one thing that I can't say. I know my own motivations and my own track record, and I don't regret what I said. I think I was absolutely honest with my fellow citizens about um, this issue. I said, do not vote for Kavanaugh thinking that he's going to be a supporter of Roe versus Wade because I don't see it. Um, But that's true of every single person on the list because, to repeat, for 40 years, the Republican Party has emphatically taken the position that Roe um, should be overruled as a disgrace. And let me say one final thing, um, uh, two things. One, um, there are, in addition to litigation, here are things that are open to people in Texas. One, go out of state so um, and, and procure legal abortions there. Now that's gonna help w- a middle class and wealthy women. What about poor women? Um, uh, liberals should actually think about pro-choice. People should think about um, funding um, uh, 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 needed travel for indigent women. Uh, Go me, and 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 so so that's one point. Second point is Congress. We we talked about the litigation already, um, but Congress has the power, in my view, to pass a Freedom of Choice Act. Protecting um, abortion services nationwide is a fundamental medical right, a fundamental human right. Um, it affects interstate commerce because um, people are traveling across state lines to perform and procure um, abortions. Um, but that's probably unlikely to pass because actually there are some pro choice um, prominent Democrats, especially in the Senate. Bob Casey,
0: pro life human. Joe-
1: Actually, pro, pro. Thank you, pro pro life Democrats um, in our party, and there are not so many pro choice um, uh, Republicans. So I don't know if um, that statute could actually, you know, would pass. Maybe Senator Collins would vote for, it, but Senator Manchin might vote against it, and Senator um, Casey might vote against it. But and that's um, but um, what Sena- What Justice Sotomayor and and journalists may have been saying, and I agree with them about this is, oh. This has to be
0: fought for politically. So that's quite a lot of perspective on the Texas law, and I think that uh, you know we went a little bit of field of it in terms of going to Roe versus Wade in general. But I think it's important to get this comprehensive understanding. And uh, you know, I appreciate you taking this on because every time you open your mouth on it, you're gonna you're you know you're going to get some abuse because even even if you are you know pro-choice and if you're uh, and if you, you know, advocated for uh, Justice Kavanaugh as being less uh, against the things that liberals stand for, possibly than the other people on the list, the, you know, then still there are people that are upset about the results, and you know, you're associated with the results at some level, so you take some abuse. But nevertheless, the function podcast is to uh you know educate the the populace and i think that, that this has gone some distance in that direction next week back to discussions of uh books and uh we'll have a little more uh uh i would say conventional discussion perhaps
1: uh, yes, yes please god no 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 more um uh, headlines here but of course yes what we've been talking about today is um not History, my book is a history book, um, about what's happening today, and, and actually you need to understand both. You can't understand what's happening today unless you understand the deep structure of the Constitution itself as distinct from the Supreme Court, Supreme law versus Supreme Court, um, and intervening events like the Dred Scott case, like the Reconstruction, um, women's equality, fundamental rights, unenumerated rights, and, and so on.
0: Okay, great. Well, until next week, again, happy birthday and Shana Tova.